what was your initial interest in ufology? Um, my my interest originally uh, started when I was just a kid, and I went outside and I look up at the sky, and I thought, all those many stars up there, 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 there just has to be somebody else. And I couldn't help but feel that there had to be somebody else, something else, looking back at me from their star. Never could shake that feeling. Then, of course, you know, uh, TV shows like Star Trek come out and there's a federation, you know, and everybody's like all getting along together and everything. And, of course, that makes it sound wonderful. And you look at the real world and you say, we are so far from that, you know, that maybe we'll never get there. I suspect we will, though. And then... Uh, uh, so it started with me looking up and, and feeling there had to be more out there. Um, but the second thing that actually got me really wondering what was going on was when uh, in grammar school, we went on a field trip to a local pond. And then this field trip to a local pond, I remember getting on the bus with my little bag lunch, my little shorts. Okay, it was warm. It was like June. It was like near the end of the year. And uh, I remember sitting down on the bus. I remember the trip to Burr Pond. And then I just remember the trip back from Burr Pond. And I still had my bag lunch. I never ate it. When I got home, my mother said, why, why didn't you eat your lunch? I, and I went, oh, I, I didn't. And I looked in there, and I, this is kind of paraphrasing what I kind of remember. I looked in and thought, why didn't I eat my lunch? I'm really hungry and I ate it right there. So uh, I had what amounted to two hours of lost time that I could never account for. And years later, I started to think about all these accounts of these people that always claim this missing time silliness is how I thought of it then and thought, yeah, that's really silly. But wait, that, that happened to me too. Hmm. And, and I started to think about it more and more. And the next thing I know, I'm thinking, was I, was I a victim of some kind of missing time thing too? And, and, and I certainly was because the kids themselves don't even remember seeing me there. In fact, several of the kids when I was on the bus, they said, how come you didn't come with us? I remember that. Huh. You know, I was like, I, I'm here. Didn't, when are we getting there? What? We've been there. We're going home now. It's like, wow. And I just had no clue. Now, I guess you could think that, you know, from if you look at medical science today, medical science would say, well, you know, he, he fainted or, or passed out in the forest. Nobody saw him pass out or whatever. And then he woke up two hours later because that always happens. <laughs> we hear about that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You hear about that all the time. You know, you know Frankie passed out again. <laughs> Classic and Frankie. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know <laughs> more missing time. Frankie storyteller. Well, anyway, I, I didn't. um I didn't know what to say. So I just stopped talking about it, you know, because they're making fun of me. So, you know, as time moved forward, uh, you know, I had, um, you know, I say forward all the way till about like eight years ago. Um, I started having uh, weird things happening where I could, uh, I saw people that weren't really there. Um, I could hear people talking in the room that weren't there. And uh, so I went to the do doctors. I went to two or three neurologists. I had um, a, <laughs> called a thinking cap. I had this thing on my head that they put on that I had to come home with and wear for a few days to press the button every time I saw these weird events or heard these weird events. And I saw and heard plenty, and I pressed the button plenty. 
And they said, no, we didn't see anything in there. So you, uh, we don't know what's causing it. Well, okay, well, okay, I had to go down that path because I was testing my theory. <laughs> and my theory had to do with uh, being able to uh, somehow penetrate that veil of what I think are parallel universes out there. Now, you may, people have often said parallel universe. How stupid, you know. But you know what? You have to look at modern science. Now, I'm an astronomer. That's what I got my degree in. So I've studied the universe. I've studied a lot of the papers. I've studied things about the prospects of potential time travel and parallel universe uh, uh, work. And it turns out that in the Astrophysical Journal, which is a very prestigious journal that we would often write articles for as astronomers, uh, in that article, uh, in that journal, there are uh, papers on potential parallel universes. And they don't say things like, well, you know, parallel universes, um, you know, may not exist. Uh, you know, it's more like it's, we're supposing parallel universes do exist because certain things don't make sense in our universe. Things like how much mass we have in our universe. You know, uh, you need a certain amount of mass in universe to have been able to have what we call the big bang, you know, you know, from the very start, right? We need to have had a certain amount of mass and our universe is shy of it by a significant margin. So that means that something else had to have happened that we don't know. Perhaps our entire universe, all 92 billion light years diameter of it is a little spurt off of another larger bang. Right. And that larger bang represents a parallel universe over here and we're over here. And if these two are near each other, perhaps in the way that, that, you know, uh, uh, I would look at like onion skin where you have uh, these, these, these universes that might be the same location, co-located in other words, in the same spot, but might be just different dimensionally. So that means that this universe here could be bumping up against this other universe all the time. And we just don't get to see through that little veil, okay? Unless there are some kind of circumstances. I tend to think that it's very possible, but not guaranteed, of course, that when people see ghosts, what they're actually seeing are parallel universe entities that seem to bleed into our universe. Now, that isn't such a far-fetched notion any longer. It used to be something that you'd be called stupid for and like, what an idiot, you know. But the fact is, it's not so far-fetched anymore because I found several papers on parallel universes and a number of them talk about the layout of the universes, okay, these concentric onion skin, basically, theory and model. Others talk about the soap suds theory where if you have a sink full of suds, every sud is connected to every other by a flat interface, a flat facet, okay? Except for the ones in the outside. The ones in the outside have that rounded facet because of the law of minimal surfaces out there, okay? But inside, they're all squared off, you know? And there's evidence that our universe might maybe be squared off. So there's a possibility that we are in a soap suds type universe, but that's certainly far from conclusive. But the fact is, if we are in a parallel universe or have parallel universes out there, it stands to reason that if they're the concentric shell model, 
then we could get this bleed through when sometimes these boundaries kind of cross each other and intersect. You know, I termed the coin, I, I coined the term, sorry, uh, parallel universe intersection. A peak, and and uh, how, how, how would you detect that, Mark? Like, how could you spot that? And therein lies the problem. Our technology can't penetrate that veil um, meaningfully or deliberately. Right. We have to do it and have been doing it potentially accidentally. Like me seeing people walking around that aren't here, you know. Now, the thing that made me feel that this was parallel universality was the fact that I was working on a movie prop. I work with Douglas Trumbull, who's one of the world famous visual effects guys, okay. And Doug and I are working on a movie with a bunch of people, and I was building this prop. I was having a ball building this really cool prop that was going to spew liquid nitrogen and do some really cool things. And as I was doing that, I saw this weird thing come walking into my shop and it spun around and laid down on the floor. It looked like a dog uh, in a sense. I mean, I've seen animals in this realm, if you will. And I just thought, I actually thought up to this point that I was actually looking at a medical issue with me that had yet to be figured out. Right. Like schizophrenia or something, right? Not, not even that. No, I just thought, see, I had brain surgery like 27, 28 years ago. And I thought maybe it was a holdover from the maturing of that injury site in the brain. Gotcha. That's what I thought. I thought it was just a medical thing. My brain was replaying stuff. And I talked to the doctors about that. And they're like, hmm, well, it's theoretically possible. But, you know, that's as far as they could go. They couldn't say that it was absolutely possible. So um, as I'm working on this thing, this, this what I consider a dog, it kind of looked like a Pekingese. It kind of came in like this, kind of think, 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 you know, think, think, think across the floor. And it had that gait, like what, what might be little yap, yap dogs. I looked at it and realized, I'm, I'm, am I seeing this thing in three dimensions? I got up and I walked over to it and I'm looking down on it now. And I see the other side of it. If my brain was replaying something it saw before, it wouldn't have that third dimension. It would only see as a projection. You know, it would be 2D, flat. Right. And if I walked to the other side, I shouldn't see anything. So I saw the other side of it in a sense. It looked like water without the shine, actually. It, it kind of shimmery, not even shimmery, but kind of undulating mass of sort of grayish translucence. And, and that's as much as I can describe it because I can't. I can't describe it any other way. Well, anyway, um, I decided I was going to step into its space with my foot. I put my left foot on it. Thunk. And when I did that, it, whatever it was, recognized that I did that. And it got up and it started to run out of the room, out of my shop. The problem was it took my leg with it. And as it started to run, I felt like a tension building on the back of my heel like a giant bungee cord that it was pulling and pulling and pulling as it ran away. And finally my leg could not stay planted on the ground. I was leaning forward, pushing down going, what's going on here. This all happened in about a second and a half, maybe two seconds. That's one, 1,000, two, 1,000. And then my leg snapped out from under me, hyperextended my left leg that the knee sw you know, swung back. And instead of going like this, it went like that, you know, it been bent up. Okay. Really, really hurt. And then my right leg followed and went up in the air with the left leg. Next thing I know, I'm falling and I hit my uh, right shoulder on a workbench as I fall and then land kind of on my side, hitting my head on my concrete floor in my shop. Now, I'm in pain. I'm hurt. My shoulder can't move because there's something wrong with it now. I had to go to the hospital for that. And I get up 
and there's nobody else in my shop but me. And I'm running around going, wow, did you see that? Ow. And I'm like, there's no one to see that. I'm the only one. Holy cow. What just happened? And as I started to think about it calmly, I thought, okay, some people would say they had a ghost encounter. I'm saying this looked like, to me, a parallel universe intersection. And when I stepped on this thing, whatever it was, and it registered that I stepped on it and it ran away. At that moment, this appeared to be rudimentary communication with a parallel universe. That was the thing that astonished me the most, was the fact that that could be possible. In fact, the fact that as an astronomer that I was actually thinking that was the more impossible thing. Right. How could you actually imagine that there is a parallel universe and that you could interact with it? Our science doesn't have any way to penetrate that right now, if it exists. And I say if it exists because I don't necessarily even believe this myself. But that was a physical also reaction. It wasn't just visual this time. You actually physically had a reaction to it, right? I did. And that physical response, um, I don't know anybody that can swing their leg out you know, knowingly themselves and hyperextend that leg, okay, damaging their knee, okay, in such force that the left, the, the right leg's gonna come up at the same time and take you right off your feet and knock you right down on your back of your head. I don't know that anyone can actually, I mean, you can kind of do it, but you fall kind of on your butt. This was right up over onto my back, and my back of my head hit the concrete first after my shoulder. And it was uh, just the feeling of being flung around like that was absolutely stunning. I, it, it's like out of control. Forces unbelievably beyond your, your comprehension were acting on you at that moment in time. Uh, and, and that's the thing which I thought was the most intriguing was that there was some kind of force in play here that I didn't know and that science really couldn't explain yet. Well, we, we have like five senses by which, we you know, we understand our reality or this reality. Yeah. But the thing is, it's only the five senses that were absolutely necessary for us to, uh, you know, evolve to this stage. I mean, if we don't know what reality is, there's probably a bunch of other stuff, but we don't have the senses to detect it or had the necessity or the purpose to detect it before. Uh, yes. And we keep, you know, finding out that our universe is always bigger than we used to think, you know, the it was just a planet and the sun went around it. Then it was the solar system. And then we realized there's a galaxy. Then we realized there's more than that. So it keeps expanding. And like you said, multiverse, it's not out of the equation. No, it, it, it can't be, Jason. And, and like one of the things like I have right inside of me, I have a, uh, a first edition book from the 1850s um, called uh, A View to the Architecture of the Heavens in a Series of Letters to a Lady. And it's the way astronomers had to communicate their, their beliefs and their, their teachings uh, back then because astronomy and astrology were still kind of linked together. And so it wasn't really taken as seriously as it could. I mean, it, it was serious within itself and within the, the, the academic construct at the time. But this was a flowery, romantically written book about studying the universe and seeing things in the sky and listening in your mind, listening to how they must have been interpreting the sky as you're reading this was the most fascinating thing. Everything they saw in the sky was part of our own galaxy. They didn't even know 
that our galaxy was a galaxy. They called it the firmament <laughs> and said, you know, the firmament, everything else that's out there besides the earth is the firmament. And uh, it's amazing because they see things like the Andromeda galaxy, which we know is 2 million light years away. Okay. And we even further know that it's actually going to collide with us in a couple billion years. Okay. But it won't hurt us, by the way. Um, but um, they had no idea that the Andromeda galaxy itself had a trillion stars as opposed to our 150 billion meager stars. Okay. They had no idea that those stars were 2 million light years away and that the light from them is 2 million years old that we're seeing. Yeah. They had no idea. They just thought it was a nebula. And that's what they kind of called it, a nebula. And they called some spiral nebula. Okay. That's sort of a holdover term you'll even hear today. Uh, but it means it's a galaxy, you know. So uh, we've progressed immeasurably, but we are pitifully low on the technology scale if we're thinking about trying to utilize methodologies to go from this star to the closest star. We're a long way from that. But we have technologies that are promising, believe it or not, to actually do that in a short amount of time. Even like the telescopes that we have now are, are far beyond what we've had in the past. I mean, I've seen some of the pictures that even you've taken and some of the videos that you've done. And it's just amazing what's right above our heads. And that's why I, yeah. it, it blows my mind when somebody cannot be open to the concept of extraterrestrial life. It's yeah. like, have you seen what's above our heads at night when the sun goes down? You know? Actually, do they do anything but this? stare at their phone, right? I'm staring at my phone and that's what I do. I don't look up. Okay, that's, that's the problem people have is they don't look up. Um, and like you mentioned our observatory, we, we have two, right? We have one here in Connecticut. We have one in the Arizona desert. Um, I, I, I've streamed live from Arizona from here. I run it from here, right? And do it everything remotely and uh, showed people the beautiful Milky Way and the dark uh, nebulae that are dust clouds going throughout the Milky Way, like little tendrils of, of dust that'll eventually perhaps be stellar systems and planetary systems. Well, that telescope is, um, in its current state, is better than most historical telescopes. And it's actually a rather modest system that anyone can buy and convert to what we did. Uh, so the telescopes have come a long way, ground-based. But the most important ones are the space-based telescopes. We know the Hubble. The Hubble had some issues lately. Uh, but the next one after Hubble, it's going to be the most important telescope on Earth, <laughs> above Earth, is the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope. This one is only going to have eyes to look in the infrared. So if it looked at anything in these rooms, the only thing it would see are things giving off heat. Okay. Uh, and that telescope uh, is going to be parked quite a distance away, not around the earth. It's going to be much further away at what's called a Lagrange point, which is like a parking spot in space. And it's going to be facing away from the sun to keep the sun's energy off of it because the detectors are so sensitive and it's going to look at, many of these planets we've identified that have planets around them or many of these stars that have planets around them that we've identified. And it's going to be able to look at the atmospheres of these planets. And it's going to see if we have, uh, it's going to infer potentially uh, if there's an oxygen atmosphere. Now that is really 
one of the holy grails of astronomy is to find another potential Earth, right? And that's what the James Webb is targeted to do. Every NASA program, every NASA probe sent to other planets has had at its most base uh, goal finding evidence of past or present life. Right. That's what their goal is. So it's finding life anywhere or finding the capability to support life. And that's kind of what James Webb's going to do. Hubble's been trying to do a little bit of that as well. Uh, the Kepler Space Telescope found thousands and thousands, over 4,000 uh, planets around other stars. And now the TESS telescope, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, has found its own retinue of stars that have planets. And whereas the Kepler Space Telescope was like a laser, it just looked at one star at a time, one star at a time, one star at a time. The TESS telescope looks at a gigantic 96 by I forget, 24 by 96 degree uh, swath of sky and looks in that entire panoply of stars for changes that could indicate a planet passing between the star and us. And that would be, that actually makes it a lot better. We're doing it in bulk now. It's bulk processing of planetary systems. People like yourself said, study exoplanets that's when you look at you know when the eclipse happens that's when you look at the planet and realize what its atmosphere is made of yeah you know what happens like uh and let me uh let me bring up this little disc right here i I know that you're doing audio only but i'll try to be as descriptive as possible imagine a disc in front of you uh, of a star and imagine a planet's crossing just onto that disc where it's passing in front of its star as it starts to cross in front of the star the first thing if the planet has an atmosphere, the first thing that you're going to see in your telescope here on Earth is what the atmosphere of the planet does to the starlight. Okay, and that that is called contamination. Um, and what happens is in that moment where the planet is crossing the star, all right, you will actually see a different chemical composition in the stellar atmosphere. However slight, however small, you'll detect that. Uh, And that is the thing that will tell us, number one, if it has an atmosphere. Because if it's just a hard edge that comes on, then there's no atmosphere. But if we see a subtle contamination of the star's spectrum, we know that that means that something, something uh, is above that planet, probably an atmosphere. And if it's affecting that atmosphere, well, hey, then we can detect what's in that atmosphere, perhaps. See, if, you know, another thousand years, if we make it as a species for another thousand years, imagine the telescopes that we'll have then. We'll probably be able to zoom in, right? I suspect we're going to make it a thousand years, uh, probably another 10,000, to be honest. Um, I think that in a thousand years, we'll probably have a very well-established presence off-world. Probably uh, by then we'll uh, have the... Uh, first interstellar probes that are making routine trips, routine trips to the nearest stars. Um, and uh, in the same way that we're about to launch the James Webb Space Telescope and be all excited about what it's going to show us, at some future time, that's going to be child's play. And they're going to say, I can't wait for that first view of Proxima Centauri. Right. You know, I guess the probe will be there in just a couple more days, you know, because uh, it's, it's very possible um, now to consider that 
there is a drive capability, a propulsion capability that it really depends on how much energy we can amass. And if we can amass enough energy, and I'm talking about way beyond fusion possibilities, okay? Certainly not fission and certainly not chemical rockets, but way beyond that. Uh, And we see that on our horizon. Our astrophysical horizon shows that possible someday maybe. Uh, Then we will be able to effectively fold space because space uh, you heard the concept of the space-time fabric, and it's not like fabric like this. It's, it is a, uh, a, def- a deformable fabric, you know, like, uh, like if you have a cloth in your hand, okay, just imagine that you know, if you hold it from the two opposite corners and then you bring those two opposite corners together, you've folded the cloth. Well, if the cloth is space, then you've folded space, and where your two fingers come together, those points were far apart, and then they were close together when you folded space, okay? In the same way, the distance from, say, Alpha Centauri, our nearest star system other than the sun, and the distance from our sun, okay? So the distance from our sun to Alpha Centauri, if we could just fold that distance down and then cross the tiny little distance between the two points of, say, the corners of the piece of paper or the corners of the fabric, and then unfold space, then we're there without actually having to traverse the intervening space, which means that we can get there not in the 10 to 12,000 years that our current technology would call for, but in as little perhaps as five days to 10 days. Now, that sounds like science fiction, sounds like Star Trek, you know, uh, engage, Mr. LaForge. You know? I mean, it sounds like that, but it's not. Well, science fiction becomes science fact, right? That's absolutely correct. And we've witnessed that so many times. It doesn't mean it's going to happen, but I've, I've firmly convinced that you can't imagine something that can't actually be possible. You know, I believe that, that we can imagine a great many things. And I think that whatever we can imagine can eventually be uh, brought to fruition. That's my feeling. You're actually the first ufologist that I've talked to since the report came out. Yeah, I haven't talked to anybody else but my wife since the report came out. I decided like an idiot to take time off of the podcast for a month during the month of June. Uh, And it was was really stupid because that's when everything was happening. And I'm like, oh, I just ended up on the Internet looking that stuff up anyway. What was your initial? I know some people had some great expectations out of the report. For me, I got out of the report what I was expecting it to be, just saying that, there's unknowns and you know it could be yep. a potential threat but let's not go ahead and call them ufos it's just classified under other yeah i agree you know um for me uh there really wasn't any surprise with this report you know i mean if we think about it you know they suggested uh that uh, of all the cases uh a number of them were this what they called airborne clutter which was birds balloons drones whatever and that's fine, all right? Or other debris like plastic bags launched to a really, really, uh, really huge height. I've seen that myself. But then there's other, like this, this one other category they said was natural atmospheric phenomena. Okay, well, there are some pretty cool things you can see in the sky. Lenticular clouds, for instance, look like UFOs, you know, depending on who you are and where, how far away they are. They can look like solid objects, you know? Because clouds look like solid objects too. Even a puffy cumulus cloud looks solidy, you know, solid-like, right? Um, solidy is a word I just made up. 
And then ice crystals can make some really strange uh, things appear in the sky too. You see some really cool rainbows of color. There's also another, uh, another weird phenomena. When they talk about the ice crystals, what they're not sharing with you is that sometimes when there's thunderstorms around and you have uh, like what look like sunbeams passing through different ice crystals in the sky, the charge up there can cause those ice crystals to flip suddenly. And you can literally see a flashlight beam coming out and then going pink, like straight up, like 25 degrees and then down and then up and down. And it's, it's instant. And it, you'd swear you're staring at somebody with a flashlight up there, you know, aiming things up and down. That's an ice crystal phenomenon that's well known, but not well publicized, as I should say. So I've seen it. I mean, I, I've, I've got videos of it and it's really uh, it, it's exceptional looking. It's amazing looking. Okay, but it has to do with the way those ice crystals are being moved, okay, by the air that's been charged. Okay, so that's one of the natural phenomena that people have said are UFOs doing this. And I get it, okay. Um, they also talk about US developed technology. I'm well aware of this because I've worked for the Navy for many years as a contractor with my, my business that I started back in 1994. And when I started that business, I started doing Navy work. I was, uh, well, uh, privileged to see some new technology because of you know, the, the nature of the special work I would do. And one such piece of technology was something that's now public called Project Cormorant, like the bird. And we called it the birdie affectionately here in my shop. And uh, my job basically with that project was to create special engineering models of the birdie. Um, for 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 show, you know, for for upper level shows, and so uh, it was being tested in a lake out in Bayview, Idaho. The whole idea was it would come out of a submarine from a missile tube, come up to the surface, open its wings, fly off the surface of the water, go do a mission, come back, land in the water like a plane gliding to a halt in the water, like a seaplane, close up its wings, sink, and go back down to the missile tube enter the tube and go home. That was the concept. Now online, it says it was canceled. Canceled. Wink, wink. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's definitely not canceled. Okay. Um, in my view, I think it's still out there. Well, anyway, when that was being tested out in uh, this particular lake in Idaho, um, there were people with cameras at the other end of the lake because uh, it was a resort and it's a big lake. But they saw this thing flying around, and they started taking pictures of it. So these people moved to the other end of the lake, got in their cars, and drove the half hour down the, the, the lake shore drive there, whatever it was, and started taking pictures of, pictures of this thing flying around. And these pictures got out, got to me, and I couldn't say a word about what it was. I was stuck right hard and fast like a rock, in a, between a rock and a hard place because I couldn't talk about it. Because at the time, it was a classified project. Right. But I, but I knew it was ours. So instead, what I did was what I typically do with these projects. I called the program office down in Washington, and I asked them, could you please release a statement that you're, you're flying this birdie, please? Because people are – I received a picture of it. Someone took a picture. So what, what do I need to tell them? And the first response, the first pass, as I call it, was tell them nothing. 
you know, they wanted to take advantage of this whole UFO possibility. Ooh, hey, you know, they'll use think it's that, and <laughs> you know, we'll get away with our testing. And I said, oh, let me paint you a picture. Um, this one person who took this picture is going to tell his friends or her friends uh, that this happened. And then in one photographer is going to be get three and then five and 10. Next thing you know, you're going to have a whole fleet of photographers at your end of the lake, yeah. taking pictures of the birdie. And one of them is going to take a picture of it doing something you don't want them to see. I would bet. Yeah. And I heard silence and the guy said, we'll get back to you. And a couple of days later, I got a, a, a little uh, email that said, basically, all right, here it is. Officially, it's one of ours, blah, 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 blah. So I made that clear to the guy. And guess what? All the photographers went home. They weren't interested in ours. They're interested in theirs. So that's why they, they went home. Oh, well, one of ours. Crap. You know. So, yeah. So you see. Disappointed. Yeah, disappointed. But, but that's the whole point. Okay. That's the U.S. developed technology category, right? That's yeah. the kind of thing they're talking about. Um, you know, and, and that can happen. Now, there's also in the other category was, uh, you know, as you as you saw, was technology developed by foreign adversaries. Well, I've, I've had occasion to wander through uh, official work onto uh, work being done by foreign adversaries as well. And uh, I actually have made models that brief the president uh, for certain technologies that other countries had. Uh I did like one or two of those, not, not many, you know, it's not a, it's really very unglamorous. I know it sounds like it is just unglamorous. Um, and, but important. Well, yeah, yeah. You just never get to hear how it went. Right. Cause you can't be there. <laughs> no. Oh, damn it. And, it's not like I said, <laughs> yeah. and here's who made this gigantic mountain hole. And that's like, hi, hi, sir. And I didn't get to do any of that. You know, yeah. none of that. It was just like, thank you very much. Um, well, you want me to help you unwrap it? Absolutely not. Okay. Well, I delivered it down to Washington and turned around and drove home. And that was the last I ever heard from, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So then, um, so technology developed by foreign adversaries is really important too. Uh, and then the thing that you're talking about and that we've all been anxious to see was the other category. I mean, and this report should have been about only other. <laughs> it shouldn't have been about all these other things. And then you say other, you know, officially it's like other uh, catch-all for encounters where there isn't enough information to determine categorization. And that could include unidentified aerial phenomena of an extraterrestrial origin too, we say, but that wasn't officially in the report. Right. Now, do you think that they were just reserved to say that? Like they didn't want that out as yeah. like the first statement or like are they waiting to – do you think drop that maybe hint later on? I don't know. You know, I mean, we all want this, what we call disclosure. But uh, if this UAP report, after all the fuss was made about it, is any indication, I don't think they're going to be saying anything tangible and real uh, for quite some time, if ever. You know, this something is something substantial. This is the yeah. closest we get. And it's not that it's not substantial. It is more substantive than than it could have been. They could have just said, yeah, we don't think there's anything to the phenomena. And that's it. But they didn't. Right. You know, which is like the first time that, you know, as a report kind of says, hey, we should probably look into this and have more funding and uh, open. I, I just hope that it doesn't just drop out. You know what I mean? Like just the bottom drops out from it and it just gets lost again with other news that's going to yeah. happen. I hope that they keep the pressure on. Yeah, I went to a day of the disclosure hearings in Washington years ago and I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, National Press Club, maybe this is going to get some traction. It didn't. 
no traction. All these, you know, these are the people on the dais that are on the dais were actually retired or, or you know, no longer serving. Uh, there was nobody there of any consequence, as it turned out. So who's going to listen to them? As it turns out, nobody. <laughs> nobody, go home. Nothing to see here. You know, so that was, that was kind of how it looked to me. No, I was going to say this closure comes from the men and women in the service. Like, they're the ones coming out saying, I'm seeing something. Like, that's where disclosure for me is coming from. It's from the people that have actually been there, interacted with these things, not the top Chevron, which we keep expecting them somehow to come out and spill the beans. And that's just never going to happen. No. But as as long as you got, you know, people that have served that say, you know what, we were on the ship and this is what happened. That's disclosure to me. Yeah, I, I know most of those guys personally. And, um, you know, I don't. I, I know that it's actually been very difficult for their lives that they've had to keep the secret for so long. Yeah. Okay. Cause they knew what they thought was a truth that they couldn't talk about. And now that it's been out more in the open there, you know, you, and you know who they are. You, you, you get it. When you look at the press, you actually see who they are. Okay. I'm not going to mention any names, but, but you know, I know, like I said, several of them uh, have had a very difficult time with this. You know, but now that it's out in the open, it's become a lot easier and they actually feel a weight lifted off their shoulders, which is wonderful. Right. Um, but see, that's the, that we're aware of the surface Navy. We're not aware of the things that the underwater Navy sees. And that's a whole nother realm. You know, I've personally felt for years and years. OK. Uh, in fact, after the thing I witnessed, um, I felt that. The underwater Navy, the submarine force, probably gets the lion's share of the sightings uh, because they don't ever see anything, but they see things on sonar, right? Well, um, I was, uh, if, uh, I did some work for the Navy and they asked, would you like to go on a sub? I said, sure. And I actually went, it was sort of like a, um, a, a cruise basically to go on a boat and go out at sea with the guys and learn about the subs do a little more. I knew an awful lot about submarines because that's my specialty right. in our business. I do a lot of underwater stuff for the Navy. Well, uh, I went for this little uh, cruise out there um, and I've characterized it as a ride in the past. Um, and, and people are critical of that, but that's, that's as much as I'll say about it and too bad if they have a problem. Well, anyway, um, while I was out there uh, before we went under, I got, pretty badly seasick <laughs> i mean there's no windows hello you yeah. know and, uh there's only so much hanging on the periscope you can do watching uh, the horizon before they actually need the periscope you know so it rocks and rolls in the surface a little bit and so uh, in order to get rid of my seasickness i sat over where the sonar guy was there was a guy running the sonar there and uh, i sat next to him and just sort of quieted myself down, closed my eyes and tried to get my stomach back and get my equilibrium back on track. Well, um, the event that changed everything was when I was literally dozing off because subs are kind of loud inside, you know, and but that sound doesn't make it out. That's why the Navy, de you know, develops these, these vehicles the way they do. The sound will not get out. You know, I understand why I understand all that, but that's something else. The problem I had was that I was almost dozing off and all of a sudden I heard this guy in the sonar yell, con sonar, con sonar, fast mover, fast mover. Huh? I wake up, 
and like hearing Con Sonar, Fast Mover, and I'm thinking, oh no, are we going to be hit by a torpedo? I actually thought we were going to be killed. So you, the, the adrenaline rush is like no other you've ever had. It's like jumping off a building knowing you have certain death waiting you. Okay, that's the adrenaline rush I got at that point. It was absolutely terrifying. Um, yet everyone is is doing their jobs normally. I'm I'm thinking, geez, these guys are amazing. They just the, the adrenaline's just not working on them. They must have had their adrenal glands removed or something. You know, I don't know. Well, anyway, the executive officer comes around the corner and he says, "What? What do you have? What, what's going on?" And the kid was facing away from me, and the executive officer was sort of facing me, so I could hear what he said, but I couldn't really hear what the kid said. Now, I can't make heads or tails of the sonar, so I didn't know what I was looking at there. But he said there was something on the sonar, and he gave a bearing, you know, an angle off the boat, and a range, the distance. And I couldn't hear those numbers. But um, when the executive officer said, well, uh, what did you get for a speed? You know, uh, the, the kid was incredulous by the speed, and he threw his hands out like this, okay, to the side. And he goes, several hundred knots, sir. And I heard that loud and clear because it was loud. He was just, he didn't know what to do with it. And, and he, the sonar guy in the boat is not supposed to have a sonar contact that he cannot identify. Right. It has to be classified. There's a discrete number of boxes and you have to put that reading in one of those boxes. If it's a Kirov class Russian ship, okay, great. If it's a merchant, you that's fine. If it's a if it's a whale uh, whale fart, okay, uh, that's actually a classification too. You know they call it biologic, right? Jeez. And it would put that in there. So um, he couldn't he didn't know what to do with it. And uh, and this was underwater. Well, he's saying fast mover wasn't above the, no. the water; was in the water. Right. It was something moving several hundred knots underwater. Now. This was decades ago, by the way, long before the Nimitz incident, okay? It was long before. And I actually started talking about this long before the Nimitz incident came out. And people would, like, kind of treat me with a little grain of salt. Uh, okay, right, right, okay. Yeah, your mind's not thinking so clearly, is it? And uh, But to be fair, okay, I, uh, I got off that boat. And, uh, well, first of all, the XO, when the kid said, you know, he didn't know what to do with it, basically, the XO looked at him and said, log it and dog it. And the kid just turned back on the screen and said, sir, yes, sir. And that was the end of it. The XO walked away. Now, I know what these fast movers could have been at that point. I kind of had a good theory. So right. I got up. Mr. Big Shot, I was invited to be on a sub. I got to be important, right? <laughs> You'd think. Yeah. Well, I thought anyway. Well, I walk over to the XO and say, oh, XO, uh, sir, uh, I'm, I'm familiar with these fast movers. Is there anything I can help you with? He looks at me, kind of squints a little. He puts his hand up and he goes, D'Antonio, right? I go, yes, sir. He says, you having a good trip? Yes, sir, I am. He goes, let's keep it that way. And he turns and walks away. Uh, that was yeah. that. Yeah. So even though I had, uh, a, a, you know, at the time, a clearance that was higher than some of the people other people on the ship uh, on the boat i uh was not privileged and that's okay you know you just yeah. accept that and say okay thank you sir and i walked away and i sat back down i couldn't wait for this this trip to be over because i wanted to start doing research well it, it took some time and a few years later i actually had to do a job for the joint chiefs i mean they're the guys that <laughs> advice of the president for crying out loud so i was really excited to do this project uh submarine project 
And I actually got to talk to a, a number of the chiefs and, and one in particular, I was sitting uh, with him and I asked him, um, sir, what can you tell me about the fast mover program? Cause I thought, you know, that's what they called it on his bow, right? And he could have gone, I don't know, what's that? You know, or he could have said, I have no clue what you're talking about. I mean, but he didn't. He didn't. He looks right. at me. He, he, he thinks for a moment and he goes, oh, you know, I'm sorry, Mark. I can't talk about that program. Can't talk about that. I'm sorry. And I went, okay, no problem. And I think I wet my pants. Yeah. Yeah. Because he still kind of confirmed. He something. confirmed without yeah. really confirming a thing. Yeah. And um, without the experience I had, um, I couldn't put it into the context or the framework of it being something moving really fast underwater that is this fast mover program. But because I did have that experience, which by the way, he did not know about, I did not share that with him. He still doesn't know it to this day. Uh, he basically just said, I can't talk about that program. I'm sorry. Whoa. So right. I put those two things together and um I've since talked to other submariners and they've said, well, when we see things like that, we're told to just call them jellyfish. And how, how wrong is that? But you know why they do it though? They do it because they have absolutely no control over it. They have absolutely no way to decipher it. They have absolutely no science on board those boats to figure out why something can travel several hundred knots underwater. Now that said, Okay, the fastest torpedo in the ocean is made by the Russians, and it's called the Skval, and it moves around 200 knots. That's fast. That's several hundred, right? Yeah. Only problem with the Skval is uh, you can hear it half uh, an ocean away. Okay, it, it's the loudest thing in the ocean. It's a desperation weapon. It's only fired when the sub firing it. It's the last thing they do. Okay, we're going to die. You're going to die too, basically. And they launch this thing at you. No sub can really get out of its way in time. Right. And the squall, um, once it reaches its destination, of course, explodes and takes out uh, the enemy combatant. Plus, the origin is painted like a big, giant target on the, you know, the firing ship. And they end up getting wiped out within just a short time. So uh, this was not that. This was only there for a short time. I don't know how long. And it vanished afterwards. And he reported it. They said, okay, log it and dog it. You know, log it and then hide it. Basically, get rid of it. So that 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 all said, okay, I've been storing that in my head for decades. And then the Russians started coming out and talking about these things. The USOs, unknown submerged objects. And I started by saying, well, I, I didn't start by telling this whole story ever. All I ever said was, well, yeah, and you know, our, our, our submarines see these too. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how do you know? And that led to me over time being more comfortable and not, not violating anything by saying, well, I, I happened to be on a boat actually as a visitor and uh, this happened when I was on the boat, you know? And they're like, really? <laughs> you know, and that led to everything else, you know? And like I said, I, I, I'm not violating anything yeah. by talking about it because it's now well-known and has been for some time. 
this and this is the part that for me the the defense department sort of seems weird on this issue and you mentioned like yeah they can't do anything about it but at the same time isn't it their job to find out what it is oh. no matter what the cost but yes just log it and tag it or or you know what however they uh describe this stuff I, it, it's just dismissive as far but as i'm concerned it it may seem dismissive but it's not the job of the xo or the submarine commander to try and figure out what this thing is They've had enough. Here's the, here's the thing, they've had enough experience with these things to know that they can't figure out what they are. They just have to tolerate their presence, right? And that's what they're doing. So log it and dog it. And you know, we can't do anything about it. Just log it and pass it yeah. through to Washington. And that's kind of what they do. You know? Yeah. Log it Washington and yeah. But then it gets it gets lost in, in the wash because you know they, they say they send all this data and yet the data isn't there or at least doesn't seem to be collected anywhere. Maybe it is, but we don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's collected and it's available and they know it's there. It's just that it's not uh, publicly available at this point. Yeah. It was enough to get the air, uh, you know, the air wings reports from the carrier groups out, you know, from the Nimitz incident and so forth. Yeah. Okay, and you had the Roosevelt incident as well. So you had, you had enough of these uh, air wing incidents where, uh, the U.S. government decided it's time to deal with it because the U.S. Navy actually changed their um, their strategies and training programs. Yeah, their people were trained now and are trained now in how to deal with unknown, you know, unidentified flying objects. This is new, and that made its way to the surface some years ago. You heard that happening, and the Navy seems to be now training people to deal with UFOs. And then the next thing you see is the Navy has had experience with UFOs. Uh, and then they report that UFOs are a, or, uh, or a UAP, as they're called now, uh, are real phenomena that can pose a threat. Yeah. Well, that's different because after Blue Book was closed, you know, and this, uh, this comment comes from Lee Spiegel as well. Okay. After Blue Book was closed, okay, um, they said we're closing Blue Book because UFOs don't seem to be a threat. Well, this is very different. UAP are a threat, according to the latest assessment. Yeah. And, and the reason they're a threat is because they are becoming a little more emboldened, you know, and they're, they're interfering a little bit more regularly with not only commercial aircraft, but military aircraft. I think that the, we have a busy planet. You know, I think that we might have more than one potential group here. And I and why would I say that? I'm an astronomer? This stuff is, you know, yeah. Us guys don't think this way, right? Well, you're not supposed to, uh, according yeah. to uh, yeah the well, standard. But I mean, yeah, I mean, you you're familiar with Avi Loeb at Harvard. I mean, I, yeah. Avi and I did an ABC special together. We've been on a, a show or two together, and I know that Avi also believes that this could have represented the, the, the when Oumuamua came through the uh, solar system. He thought that could represent uh, a potential alien probe. And he was roundly criticized by his compatriots. And he is an astrophysicist, right, at Harvard. Yeah. So clearly, um, clearly the world and the academia is not ready to talk about this. Yeah, but unfortunately, there, there is a lot of scientists, though, now speaking up about it. People like yourself, you know, astronomers and stuff like that, that have been open about the subject for quite some time are getting a lot more... Uh, I wouldn't say attention, but I would say more uh, viewer or listeners 
there's more people willing to listen now saying oh wait a minute look at this guy over here he's you know he's got all the same credentials and he's saying more the opposite of what yeah more awareness of the situation and okay. i agree with you i i think the world is a busy place i think it's like a beehive yeah i, I agree i don't i don't know that it's as busy as a beehive perhaps i mean that's a good analogy i get you but maybe it's more like a um uh, what eh, i don't know uh like a colony of meerkats <laughs> okay where you have say 12 to 15 individuals or maybe uh, 20 individuals okay um but in the alien arena i think we're talking about just uh, a handful right. of potential potential not even guaranteed, but potential civilizations that may have found us already. But but the reason they found us is the most important part, and it's the it's the reason that 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 science seems to forget. You know, Stephen Hawking himself even said this, and I took issue with this. He said that you know, we should keep our heads down and don't 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 try to make waves out there. We want to stay hidden because an alien civilization could make mincemeat of us. Well, he's right about all those things. But the fact is we can't and haven't kept our heads down. And I'm not talking about from the first radio transmissions from Marconi or otherwise. I'm talking about going back over just about two and a half billion years ago. Because that's when oxygen started building up on our planet because life was replenishing it. Right. Oxygen doesn't like to be in an atmosphere. It's going to drain out of the atmosphere very, very quickly relatively. And go into iron compounds in the ground, bond with other things, okay? Iron compounds bond with oxygen and form rust, Fe2O3, okay? That's what happened to Mars. You know, the oxygen, the free oxygen in the Martian atmosphere, once it was ripped apart from oxygen, uh, from water molecules in general, went down into the ground, bonded with iron, and made Mars red. That's why it's rusted. You know, it's, it's a rusty red planet. Well, see, did so, not know that. See, well, that's that's why it's red because it's rusted, all right. And the primary component in the soil is things like hematite, you know, which is a uh, basically like a effectively a form of uh, an iron compound that's been oxidized by oxygen, you know, and rusted. So that said, okay, uh, oxygen doesn't want to remain in an atmosphere for very long, and we have an overabundance of it. Our, our planet is in what's called disequilibrium. It's not in equilibrium. We are not in equilibrium. We are at an overbalance of oxygen, and thus we're here. If this wasn't true, if oxygen was allowed to reach its own level that it wanted to stay at, the human race would be extinct within uh, 100 million years or less. You know. So, so what, what made the plant extinguished, I should say? What made so it's just life that propels oxygen to be as uh, well, I wouldn't say numerous, but you know, it's is it life that sustains oxygen then? Yeah, in a sense, let me explain how that happens. Okay, we have vast oceans on the planet, and in those oceans are what are called phytoplankton, little tiny animals. And what they do is they give off oxygen as they're making energy in the planet. Okay, on the planet. As they exist, they give off oxygen, right? The rainforests give off oxygen. And they also absorb other things like, you know, carbon dioxide and so forth, and then give off oxygen. Well, so the phytoplankton on our planet are responsible for up to 87% of the oxygen we have in our atmosphere. Okay, we're a big water planet. So you can see how only another big water planet might have the possibility of sustaining life like us. 
Right. Right. Because that, that much oxygen has to be overabundant in the atmosphere. Oxygen comes out of the atmosphere all the time, all the time, every day at high rates. Okay. But the phytoplankton are overpopulating the oxygen in the atmosphere, keeping it at that higher level. And so is the Amazon rainforest and the other rainforests on the planet, Indonesia, all throughout. So together, um, the oxygen is being made by life. And if it wasn't being made by life, it would only be made by geologic processes, which also happens. But that fraction is minuscule compared to the, the, the amount being made by life. So any alien civilization worth its salt will know that this planet, this little blue marble from tens of thousands of light years away, heck, they could be a billion light years away. And they would know that this planet has life on it because they could just do what we're now trying to do. Look at our atmosphere and figure out whether we have any oxygen in our atmosphere. And that matters if they're made of carbon like we are. Carbon-based life forms require oxygen to generate their energy. So that means any other carbon-based life form in the universe, which is very likely, by the way, carbon is the granddaddy of all elements in the periodic table. Right. It bonds with more things than any other compound and any other atom, including silicon, by the way. Silicon bonds, people always say, what about silicon-based life? They're not as robust in their bonding capability as carbon is. Carbon is, is just tenacious, okay? And there's lots of it. Well, that said, um, the oxygen in our atmosphere would be visible, well, literally out to about two and a half billion light years, if you want to consider the known universe and how long oxygen has been, the signal of oxygen has been traveling out of our atmosphere from in, in the light, okay? So, you know, um, realistically, 10,000 light years away or, or within our galaxy, 100,000 light years in every direction, right. uh, we should be able to get, uh, you know, you know, a, a fair amount of alien civilizations that might have noticed by now. So it, just for yourself, Mark, like when you hear like the details, let's say of the entities that people have been describing that they've seen, one, they're all bipeds. They all seem to have two arms. They both, they, they all seem to have eyes and mouth. Yeah. And oxygen seems to be something that they all either capable of breathing or existing within oxygen at least. Uh, does that give you like any indication of like what kind of planet most likely is to to harbor life? Because it mean it mirrors our own a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, and and that that but see that makes sense. I'll tell you why. Um, if you look at every single life form on our planet, they all share something in common, and that's first of all DNA, of course, uh, and that DNA um, is something that looks like. Uh, the precursors of DNA could have actually been formed uh, near subsea volcanic vents. Uh, that's something we're seeing now, which is kind of interesting, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, this, uh, this consideration of the life forms kind of looking like us, um, look at the life forms on this planet. All life forms on this planet share something in common, and that is symmetry. All life forms beyond a certain number of cellular, you know, multicellular organisms, okay? They share symmetry. Two arms, two eyes, two nostrils, two ears, right? Okay. Um, two legs, four legs, doesn't matter. It's symmetric. You don't have any three-legged cows, you know, 
and right. pogo stick cows bouncing around the pastures, right? Might be one or two, but and, very rare. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> they would have to have been engineered. Okay. So the bottom line is that that uh, this symmetry probably comes from the way DNA replicates. Uh, perhaps that's just the theory I have for why we see this symmetry. We have radial symmetry in plants, you know, tulips and other flowers have these petals arranged, but it's symmetric. Right. So any life form that's going to be generated in the universe is probably going to share some level of symmetry. And if they're going to be able to get around, then you can imagine that there will be life forms that make their way to a bipedal condition like us. We right. were we were four-limbed creatures at one point that used all four limbs to travel. And then we went upright. And how that exactly happened is a is a, a discussion of anthropology, okay, and, and so forth. But uh, if we want to go beyond that and look at how human beings have developed, you can actually draw a parallel to say, well, when you look at, say, gray aliens, they're bipedal. They come here, they have two arms, two legs. Well, that makes sense. Symmetry. You know, the symmetry. Yeah. They're probably carbon-based, so they're made of the same stuff. They have the same type of DNA, the same structure that we call DNA, but in their flavor. And they would actually be symmetric as well. So I'm not surprised by that. The way they look, though, is a function of how they evolved. Right. Now, had dinosaurs not died, okay, and I've said this in talks all over the world, actually, if dinosaurs had not died – we can't say for sure that human life would have arisen as it has. We can say for sure, however, that life such as us should it have arisen would not look like we do. We right. might actually have scales or we might actually have tails and possibly some vestigial feathers. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, it depends because somewhere along the line, it could be that humans and dinosaurs sort of merged or diverged, merged, then diverged. I mean, it could have happened along the line if dinosaurs never died out. Um, we do know that the oxygen levels in the planet have been reducing steadily to the 21% we have now. Um, they were very high uh, during the earlier, earlier aspects, up to like 33%. That's pretty high. Okay. And that fostered bigger lungs, bigger animals, bigger capability. Huge uh, bugs, huge bugs. Huge bugs, right? that's right. Yeah. Four-foot dragonflies, okay, well, two-foot dragonflies. I exaggerate. Centipedes the size of cars, yeah. Centipedes, yeah. <laughs> Only in the movies. Well, Only yeah. in the movies. <laughs> yeah, but the fact is, of course, that, you know, when we look at these, the, the way uh, life evolved here, um, life here was subject to the circumstances. You know, we exist as we do, just as we do with this, this really fragile skin that we have and you know, the UV lack of protection that we have and all that. We exist exactly because of five major extinction events that have happened here. We can't right. guarantee there's going to be five extinction events. You know, three of those extinction events look like they were biological issues, a loss of uh, diversity, uh, you know, a change in the uh, acidic uh, nature of the oceans, um, like the Permian period, you know, that was a, what they call the great dying. 97% of all life passed on, Right. Well, that could have been because of uh, large volcanic eruptions in what's now Siberia. And uh, that could have uh, put in this, this, this uh, catastrophic amount of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere 
And we know that it raised the temperature of the planet by 22 degrees in a very short time, you know, over some, some, you know, number of uh, years. So that of course is a catastrophic event and that affected life everywhere. So, um, but that's, that is not an asteroid hitting the earth. That's right. That's, that's something else. But see, if we've gone through that, that means that any other entities that have survived longer than us has also gone through that, or their planetary systems have also gone through those cycles. That's right. They've had more or less of these events than us. Right. Do you have a theory as to why the uh, grays have large black eyes? I do. Um, and it's only a theory and we don't know for sure. But uh, one of my thoughts is that they um, could be uh, a group of uh, beings that exist on a uh, planet that is always on the night side. Okay. Right. And when we look at uh, different types of stars, we have the stars in orders that are, that are O-B-A-F-G-K-M. O are the hottest and the bluest and the M are the coolest and the, and the smallest. But in the M stars, those M stars are the most common star in the whole universe. And they have the most planets of any other type of star in the universe. So what does that mean? It means if there's going to be life, it's probably going to be around an M star. Now, M stars have their own caveats and their own issues. We have to be careful about how we talk about it because M stars also have flaring events, flare events, kind of like the X-class flare that struck here uh, last Saturday, you know. Um, we, we can get through that because we have a thick atmosphere. We're at the right distance, et cetera. Our sun doesn't, we don't have to be near the sun, um, as much as stars that have this M class where the planets orbit, literally all of them within the orbit of what would be Mercury around our sun. So fast. Yeah. They'd be fast. They'd be, they'd orbit their sun. One year would be a few days. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, it's great and, if, you, if you love Christmas. Yeah, that's right. If you love yeah. Christmas, you know, you like birthdays, you'll be 7,000 years old in no time. <laughs> well, but the thing is, okay, those, those stars and those planets actually have a, um, a problem. That is because they're so close to the star. If this is the star. If my fist was a star and you had another uh, object circling it. Just like the moon is locked to our Earth, these planets will be locked to that star. Okay. Gotcha. And that's gotcha. called tidal locking. And that's something that... Uh, you know, causes a problem for anyone who's trying to theorize the existence of life because, you know, we don't have the same kinds of weather patterns. We don't have a spinning globe or temperatures are evened out. But what we do have is a warm tropical side all the time on the planet that's facing the star. Then we have an interface where there's always a sunset. Okay. And we have a backside, which is always cooler, but also uh, dark. So, if life was going to develop on such a planet, I suspect it's going to develop around the sunset side. Okay. Where you have some light and you have some dark. Right. And if it does, then that means that creatures that would develop there would have larger eyes by definition. You know, if you're just past the sunset side, if you, and maybe the tropical side, the sunlit side is a no go zone for all we know, you know, yeah, depending on its uh, closeness to the sun. Yeah, I guess. yeah, yeah. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and if and, if, and and you know if it has an atmosphere that's that's probable and can support life, that's great. But these M stars do have these flares, and these flares can launch uh, a cosmic uh, catastrophe on the planet. You know, by by throwing a coronal mass ejection at it, and those 
that's that's high energy particles and, and streaming from the sun or the star, which is actually now, of course, much closer to the planet. Hmm. However, because the planet is moving much faster around the star than normal, it's possible that these events could occur far more frequently or far less frequently. Because if there's a mass ejection that goes off in one direction, well, that planet may not be there by the time it gets there. I got you. Okay, so, or because it's going around so fast, then it's possible that the coronal mass ejection will hit it no matter what. So you got to balance that and try and figure out what's more likely. Um, but, you know, that that's my theory around, say, grace, you know. Um, and there's other types of people say are here, you know, and, and similarly, it means they're around different types of stars, most likely. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm totally interested in, you know, the, the fact is that people mentioned the different shapes, different sizes, you know, you've got your reptilians and your grays. The grays seem to be more prominent in most people's stories, but their mm -hmm. physicality has yeah got to do with either space travel necessities or has to do with where they're from. Yeah. Uh, as as far as uh, let's promote some of your uh, work. Now, you are also a radio host on uh, KGRA, and that's Sunday. So tonight, actually, you're going to be on there. That's uh, th this should be, well, posted after tomorrow. So actually, people will miss it. But uh, every right. Sunday, uh, you are at 6.30 till? Oh, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern 8, time. 8 p.m. And that's a SkyTour live stream uh, that you do as well. Here's a notes here i had here and i totally lost my notes that i had on that one but uh that's right. i looked at i looked at your sky tour live stream on youtube yeah uh, as well and i like the your your commenting and your as you're going through your filters and all that uh, way above my my pay grade uh you know like some of the stuff that you do is just that's cool I, i'm not techie like that uh, well, that's the whole point though okay uh yeah. the astronomy i do is astronomy that reaches everybody because yeah, you know, I think the science is for everyone. You just have to have it explained your way. Yeah, and so I give you science your way, that kind, you know, their way. You can tell that your heart is there, and that your fans, uh, you see the chat there on the, the YouTube channels and stuff like that. This people support, yeah, yeah, they they love it, and you know what? I, I I'm I'm humbled by them. You know, they they're the reason I'm there. Uh, and you know, honestly, I think that, like I said, you know. We have an observatory here in Connecticut, this one in Arizona. Uh, the one in Arizona has room for two more telescopes in it. And, and so we're eventually going to be adding more there. Uh, we're also working on a traveling observatory, which we'll take to different locations in the country and do star nights for people who want to attend. So is this something like yeah. you're on the back of a, of a rig, like a, a trailer or something like that? Yeah, we're thinking about a rig, and actually, we've got people on board who are thinking about helping us with that to to do a rig. We don't. We're actually looking for you know some type of support from a foundation right now. Anyway, I mean, we want that kind of support because that's how this is going to happen. No, but it. I took my astronomy degree to a different place. Uh, I could have been in the mountains of Chile, uh, working on a specific project, uh, but I kept always coming back to the fact that people. You know, people don't understand astronomy. People don't look up. And all I want to do is help people to consider looking up more. And so I ended up going into outreach, and I actually found it extremely rewarding. You know, I've got a lot of people who responded so positively to what we're doing. It's really amazing. And I can't, you know, and that's Sky Tour live stream. You know, Sky Tour Radio is the show on Sunday nights on KGRA that you mentioned. Right. 
if people want to just read about this stuff, well, then they can actually go to Amazon and get the book called The Populated Universe, which uh, I wrote, which is uh, it's about the search for exoplanets and intelligent life in the universe. Uh, you're going to be at the International UFO Congress this year? Yeah, actually, now that things are starting back up, um, you know, I, I've traveled around the world doing talks and I've done a lot of different locations. Uh, I also do a lot of TV. Um, I just finished filming with A&E two days ago here and we did uh, season two of The Proof is Out There and that's going to be coming out. Um, I had a lot of stories in there that I, uh, I was asked to work on with them. Uh, and then uh, um, I've been on, uh, we actually filmed for Travel Channel. We filmed a two hour documentary, which is supposed to air whenever, hopefully soon. Uh, and um, that was on the Hudson Valley UFO uh, debacle. There's Hudson Valley UFO sightings have been throughout our history, replete with, with many sightings throughout history. And so this is a two hour documentary on that. And that took us all over New York State, looking at various sites, locations, talking to different people. And my job on that series or show, if it goes to series, great. But if it doesn't, that's okay, uh, is, is to be uh, a technical guy who works with some of the equipment and shares. So the three of us, um, you know, I had two other co, uh, co, uh, co-hosts, if you will, uh, and the three of us were actually working on that together. So yeah, I think that's right. The the first time uh, I saw you was uh, I think it was on one of the episodes for uh, Unexplained Files. NASA's Unexplained Files or something. Unexplained, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I did all all the seasons. Yeah, of that. so that's I I know you've been on on TV quite a bit, uh, but it's good that you know I think now you guys are going to get a lot more busier. I think there's going to be a lot more documentaries and stuff like that. Too, oh, right? I'm afraid you're right. You know, I'm okay with that. I mean. I just write information to get out there, you know, Jason, you know, you know, and just like you, your show is a very good one because you want to get the truth out there. You're not interested in fabricating stuff just to get clicks, you yeah. know, and that's actually uh, part of the reason that I agreed to do yours. Oh, well, thank <laughs> you. I was going to ask you some questions on uh, video uh, software and stuff like that, but uh, we ran out of time. So that's definitely an episode for uh, in the future, just asking you about the technical aspects. Definitely come back and talk about that. That'd be awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today, sir. Jason, thank you. It was really exciting. Thank you very much. (laughs) 